Privilege is something I think about a lot. It is something you're born into, and many of us don't think twice or have to stress about things that should be as simple as a warm house, food in our bellies, and the clothes on our backs. It's important to be thankful for everything we have and are given. Our guest today personifies gratification. He started on the streets and, through his determination, worked his way up to the track, racing in single-seaters, saloons, and, more recently, classics. If you're wondering how we did it, I would listen carefully to what's to come. I had to punch my way into the world, that's for sure. I mean, my brother and I didn't really have parents in the conventional sense, and we lived all over the place in some reckless and, and tricky situations. I learned pretty early on that unless you make things happen in the world um, yourself, they're not going to happen. If you, if you hang around waiting for other people to make them happen, nothing happens. That's a great lesson. I feel very lucky, actually, to, to have been taught that and learned that from such an early age. Like, we may have nothing and literally be living in the gutter, and we were uh, at the time, but not having money wasn't going to stop me doing anything. If you're hell-bent on making it into a career, right, only do it if you absolutely have to. And what I mean by that is, like, it's the only thing that's going to work for you because, because you're going to need that level of tenacity. There's always the positive. The positive is I drove myself relentlessly hard. Right, because I never felt good enough. Never. Right? Yeah. Still, and still probably don't. Right. Uh, today, whatever I do is never quite good enough. It's very rare. Even to today, I have to consciously, like being in the moment, I have to consciously say, "You did a decent job there." Just a quick one. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I just ask if you haven't already, please click follow or subscribe wherever you are listening. It takes two seconds, and it really helps the podcast reach new people. I would love if the episode today would help just one person discover something new or help them on their journey in their career. So thank you. Headspace is now becoming more critical than ever. In the past, if you wanted to work on your body, you'd go to the gym. And if you wanted to work on your brain, there was therapy. But recently, other options are becoming increasingly more popular and available. I'll be the first to admit that having access to the privilege and being able to afford treatment has been some of the best working out I could have ever done. So thank you for Tacona, the brand set on taking mental health conversation and breaking the taboo in the automotive industry and helping calm the campaign against living miserably by creating a Christmas raffle. By entering this Christmas raffle, it gives you the opportunity to win amazing prizes from all corners of the automotive world, from clothing, coffee and art, to a ride in a Porsche 959 and a private tour of Concorde. So if this sounds like something you want to get involved with, to enter and win these fantastic prizes, you must head over to JustGiving.com. Join me by giving and helping Calm continue their work with suicide and mental illness. Plus, win your share of 15 and more amazing prizes as a thank you for your generosity and support. The links will be in the show notes below. And if you have any questions, feel free to DM me or to Kona. I'm sure they'll be more than happy to help. And not only are to Kona helping with this Christmas raffle, also helping you with 15% off their store. That means you can get something for yourself, your loved ones, or someone you care about, just to let them know that it is okay to talk, and it is okay to have conversations around mental health. Now, back to the episode. Um, oh, I mean, Steve, um, presenter, trainer, racer, aviator, these are a few things that I mean you're known for, but what would I need to know about you, your education, and your upbringing to understand the man you are today? Okay, Harry. Um, 
well wow um what do you need to understand i would say i had um uh i had to punch my way into the world that's for sure we didn't we, we my brother and i didn't really have um parents in the conventional sense we we were shopped around to various foster parents um and we lived all over the place in some fairly i'd say um reckless um and and tricky situations so i think that um i i started out really I, I kind of feel like from the age of about five, I was looking after myself. Mm. So um, I didn't have, I didn't really have much guidance or support or, you know, parental steering, shall we say, when we started out. So um, I would, I would think that that would probably um, be a good place to start. You know, that um, I learned very, from a very, very young age to be uh, resourceful. I think, and I, I got a work ethic uh, from a young age. So I don't, I'm not really conscious of having had a childhood. So I think, I think okay. that my, my first memories are of grafting, I would say. Um, and, and, and I consider that that's really a positive because, I, you know, from literally from a very young age, I was supporting myself. And, um, and I learned pretty early on that unless you make things happen in the world, um yourself they're not going to happen if you if you hang around waiting for other people to make them happen nothing happens that's a great lesson i feel very lucky actually to to have been taught that and learn that from such an early age yeah i mean in terms of grafting what was it the things you were trying early on that gave you this resilience and gave you this sort of <clears throat> urge to to try things for yourself i th i think that you know for for example we we uh my brother and i we did live in quite a reckless manner you know, I, I slept on the, the, you know, I can remember sleeping on the streets as a child, literally. Um, mm. And I think that that was probably, you know, in the, in the lowest moments. You know, I remember we lived, uh, my brother and I lived in a tent when we were very young on a beach in the south of France. Um, and, and there wasn't much food around. There certainly wasn't any money around. And so I think that you learn that probably makes you very determined. I think that you're going to do whatever you have to do during your life, not to end up in that situation again. So, uh, and and I think that that funnily enough, that sort of combat training from such a young age, you know, proved that that's really, it was really a useful thing during say, for example, the lockdown um, when, because of the nature of the business I do, um, I didn't get supported so like we had zero income or zero support available. And I think that for myself, I knew that I'd been there before. Do you, yeah. Does that make sense? So if you've been in a really in a really tight spot before in your life and worked your way through it, then you 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 have the chops to know that you're going to do it again. So I think that gives you a sort of, I don't know, maybe a steely determination, Harry, to 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 actually uh break on through that you're gonna you're gonna find a way through it yeah so, and for, for that i'm very grateful and is it i mean guess steady determination this this wanting to to do things for yourself is how does that manifest itself how is that when if, where there been moments at the time you thought well, just just get on with it and do it where most people wouldn't <clears throat> You know, I think I think I was also lucky, and it's, it's an interesting thing. Like when I came of age, I came of age. You know, I was quite young at the time, but I was very influenced by um, 
in the 70s, uh, we had punk rock, right, when I came of age, like punk rock music. And I remember that because I was effectively at that point homeless um, yeah. and and I was kind of dispossessed. So I would say um, so were most of the people who were shaping and, and, and making punk rock music at the time. And, and I think that was fantastic because um, the punk rock ethic was that you didn't have to be a virtuoso to go out and create music, right? It's better than just instead of waiting forever, you know, until you've been to the Academy of Music or, you know, and you've done all your grades, you just get out and do it and make it happen. Yeah. And I, I feel, again, I feel very grateful, actually, to, to come to my age. I was, I was massively inspired by a band called The Clash, which I, I'd urge you to look up. Joe Strummer and The Clash, you know, he was like my hero, musical hero, if you will. And Bob Marley but it was another one because my mother's Spanish Trinidadian, so he grew up in the West Indies, so reggae music was important to me. And um, the, this was the music of the streets. So it spoke to somebody like me, who at the time might have been like 12, 13 or something, as, as these, this music was happening. And um, it kind of, I don't know, it gave, it gave us, it gave us uh, our own thing, our own scene, and it gave us a determination that, to, to, to break on through. You know, that <laughs> like we may have nothing and literally be living in the gutter, and we were uh, at the time, but not having money wasn't going to stop me doing anything. Does that make sense? It's like, you know, there's a sort of a, uh, they, were, they were great role models or inspirations for me. The, the fact that they, you know, they didn't really know how to play. They couldn't really afford their instruments. Back in those days, there was no pop idol. It wasn't like that. You know, mm -hmm. they were, these were kids coming out of the ghetto and they were determined that they were going to punch their way through. And and I think that sort of, um, that was great, you know, and it's, and, I, and, it, and it taught me a lot. And I would overlay that to things that I wanted to get done in life that were tricky. Like I can remember, for example, uh, it didn't come easy to me learning to play guitar. For example, I, I, I was okay. very clumsy. I think, I, you know, it was hard. But I always knew that if I stuck at it, I'd find a way to do it, kind of. And then, and then I guess, when I learned to fly helicopters, you know, when I finished racing full-time and I went off to become a helicopter pilot, I actually qualified in the, the shortest hours you could qualify in because money was really tight. Mm. But... But I had a mindset that didn't matter to me how difficult somebody said something was at the time. You know, I think I was hovering in, I remember I was hovering in like three hours or something like that. And and so, okay. but I had been racing before that a bit. And I also had ridden motorcycles and all these things help from a coordination point of view. But definitely if you have a mindset that you can do anything that you set your mind to doing, um, that that's that's very powerful, I think, to have that, to come at it with that mindset. No, it's fantastic. Yeah. You know, and, and also I think it's important to to understand that it's better to make something that's rough around the edges and a bit crude than not make anything at all. Does that make sense? You can always refine yourself and get better at mm. what you're doing. But there's many people who never even try because the fear of failure stops them from having a go. Yeah, I think it's great. It's that, um, that phrase you say, that <clears throat> said, um, you, whether, you, whether you think you can or you can't, you're probably right. And you speak about being lucky to have this, this horrible thing happen to you, not a horrible thing, but to, to be to be without fat parents and that guidance at a young age, finding your own way and, and and building off yourself and building the man you are now today. I mean, most people would say that's 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 not the best situation to happen, but you've got you've gained skills, you've gained lessons that 
in life are so important, like determination, determination, resilience. Harry, there's there's always a positive, you know, and it, yeah. sometimes it's hard to find it. Sometimes it's hard to find it, you know. Um, you know, I had a massive blow earlier this year. We adopted a little Bengal cat, little uh, baby cat, and he was run over, right? And, and it's impossible to find a positive in something like that. It broke my heart. I adored him, you know. And we 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 foster troubled Bengal cats. <laughs> Amazed that you can't hear him at the moment. There's one downstairs uh, in the front room, and there's one roaming around the house, but. You know, so there are things like that. It's really hard when you look at that. And he was such a beautiful spirit. You look mm-hmm. at that and you think to yourself, um, it's very, very difficult to see the positive in that. It's so hard. But you, that's what you you kind of have to do that. I mean, that that would be one of my philosophies. I think the other one is taking responsibility for yourself, which nobody ever does in, in, in the modern world. You know, actually actually accepting responsibility. No, really, you know, doing that because... Um, if you don't do that, you you become a victim. Really, you either take responsibility or you become a victim. There is no sort of in between. Yeah, that's hard too sometimes like, to take responsibility for. I'm in this situation, uh, and it's up to me to get myself out of it. Nobody else. And that really, that's unfortunately that's 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 the tragedy of I'd say of, of Britain today is that everybody expects everybody else to find a solution to their situations. And the only solution is to dig in, right? Dig in and work really hard, you know, and 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 be tenacious, and be brave, and be courageous. Instead, what you, you, we have at the moment is we have parasitical people in power, stealing from you know from the people really, and just giving people short measures all the time, charging a fortune and giving short measures, and um, that's not how you rebuild a great country. We need to address that. And, and, you know, there's such talent in the UK. There's such creativity in this country, creative people, uh, determined people, people with spirit. And I feel like they've been crushed and they've allowed themselves to be crushed. They haven't got any confidence. And and, and we'll need to rebuild this country. We really will to, to become the power that it could and should be. And, you know, you, you can look at microcosms. There are key areas in this country where we are still, you know, I'm, I'm quite, again, I'm very lucky and pr- proud, I guess, to, I don't know if that's the right word, um, to work in automotive and in the motorsport industry where we still, mm. as you know, like we still are um, a hub for all things motorsport and racing in this country. And that's because of the nature of the people and i'm lucky enough to work with some of them you know and they're, they're so i work with some enormously inspiring people tenacious people but creative people you know when that, yeah. and that, that when i travel abroad and work abroad as i do um i always love coming back to the uk because somehow in, the, in this country you know so many things that i love that we i love the music here you know i love the comedy in the uk you know the the british sense of humor is is incredible in so many respects and if you think you know this tiny island if you look at it on a on a globe and see how much it's given the world admittedly it's taken a lot from the world too you know we haven't behaved particularly well you know throughout history often but there are there are certain there are certain specks on the planet where which have which have done far more than their size would suggest they would japan would be one um jamaica you know, if you look at the amount of music that's come out of creativity and talent that's come yeah. out of Jamaica, for example, I mean, it's just, it's astonishing. 
Um, and, and Britain is like that. And there's something about this country that draws you back in. No, I, I, yeah, I think it's, I mean, the way the way looking at the way, I mean, politics isn't my, my, I guess, my strong suit when it comes to investing and caring about the country. And it's probably something I should, I should look into more, to be honest with you. It's something that I feel like I'm lacking in. But I mean, I wanted to talk about more about, Steve, more about your, how you got into cars. I mean, it's without looking at the leadership that's going on in the country at the moment, which frankly, let's, let's, <laughs> let's not get into that. We could be here for a whole hour. Yeah, there ain't any. That's, but that's, yeah. But I mean, so in terms of you, Steve, in terms of how you got started in the automotive and motorsport world, um, what was that journey like? And the, edu- I mean, we talked about sort of you, you, you living on the streets. I mean, what was it that gave you the education to go and gave you the information to go? Mm-hmm. Oh, racing might be a, of interest to me. Racing might be of, of where I can find myself. Thank you for listening so far. And before we get back to hearing more from our guests, a huge thank you to those who support the podcast by listening and sharing it among friends and enthusiasts alike. Suppose you could help by becoming a patron. By becoming a patron, you can access live events and video podcasts. These podcasts will always be and continue to be free forever. But like anyone doing something out of passion, I want to improve. Better guests, audio and production. If you're willing to give a small monthly amount and invest in my mission to inspire, inform and entertain by getting better equipment and giving me more time to invest back in the podcast, I would be forever grateful for anything you can provide. If you're currently on your journey to explore your passion for cars and need help introducing yourself to people in the industry, patrons will also be having a one-to-one with me to help advise and see if the network I have built during this podcast can help you achieve your goals. I will leave further information in the show notes below if you want to know more about how you can help. Passion. Honestly, Harry, like like a dream. You know, certainly I remember from a very young age, any kind of uh even like two-wheel push scooters as a kid i can mm. remember having enormous um shunts trying to take corners too quick i remember rolling a pedal go-kart literally rolling one <laughs> you know funny considering that you know years later i was to continue the theme in in real cars but um i i was um i, I was just hooked from a really early age on anything with wheels that um that that went quickly the feeling of it i had uh actually had thinking about it i had a um briefly had a foster father um not for very long actually this guy but he was like an amateur rally driver in the background yeah and i remember being completely fascinated um by the whole thing you know the car the sound what he was doing the, the whole sport but when i was when i was young and also you know it's really funny you know i used to i used to have dreams about doing it when I was a kid, very much actually that, funnily enough, and levitating, believe it or not. That's where the helicopter came in, like just being able yeah. to levitate. I dreamt about that. And, and motorcycling. I mean, I can remember as a really young kid, years before I ever experienced it, um, dreaming about what it would feel like to go scything through through the air like you do on a motorbike, that feeling of freedom, you know. And so um, I was just... I was in love with the idea of doing it and everything about it, you know. And then I can remember as a schoolboy when the BBC first started showing Formula One yeah, uh, on TV. And I used to use uh, the money I got from doing a paper round to buy Motorsport magazine um, back in the day, which was the one, you know. And, and that would take all my newspaper money. I'd work a week to buy Motorsport magazine and read about like Mario Andretti and Team Lotus and stuff like this. And just... I don't know, you know, just like the, the the dreams of looking at that as a kid and then seeing the likes of James Hunt. I remember like when motorsport was first on TV, seeing James Hunt 
and this incredibly charismatic Brit. You know, he he was like, a, I yeah. suppose, he was like a fighter pilot would have been during the forties. You know, he was like a full-on, I'd say, like a boy's own hero. And I was, I can remember being so inspired by that as a as a kid, and just thinking, right, that's it. <laughs> you know that. Or, or I guess at the time, you know, probably there was a period when I was thinking like being a fighter pilot um, would have been cool. Um, yeah. And I did actually go through air crew selection at Biggin Hill. I could have probably gone um, either way if I'd have got into the uh, field navigator's mass by 2%. I remember passing pilot's coordination, pilot's mass, navigator's coordination, and I failed navigator's mass on the algebra at Biggin Hill. I went for air crew selection to fly. In those days, it would have been... Um, I'm going to say Buccaneers or something like that, like a jet plane that flew off carriers. And and I and I guess Harry, I guess if I'd have passed that, I may, may, may never have gone racing, or I might have just gone racing for fun, because that was at the time. I'm pretty certain it was like uh, be a fast jet pilot or be a race driver. You know, that's yeah. proper school, proper schoolboy stuff, isn't it? Right there, <laughs> it is. yeah. It's like when you ask a fiver what they want to be, they'll say astronaut, astronaut racing driver, or yeah. yeah, astronaut race. No, no one really says stockbroker of age five, you know, you know, <laughs> until they understand how money works and they suddenly change the change their view on it. But I don't know. I never did actually, to be honest. I never. I know it sounds mad. I was never, never. It was never really about the money at all, ever. Just as well because it never led to any money, you know. But but but. It, Actually, you know that you know that's far less important to me than um, doing stuff I love. Genuinely, and it's like you know, and I, and I never targeted money, um, and and it, it's it, it's practically practically it's difficult when you're not making enough to do the projects or do what you want to be doing. But yeah, again, I have to, I have to say I've been very lucky. Like um, I mean, I've made a lot of money, but my God, I've had some fun and done some done some really really good stuff. Been lucky. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 more than just sort of um. Ex, ex, would you trade all the money in the world for all the experience that you could have no, in your lifetime? Hell no, you know I've got I've got you know I, at the moment since the pandemic I haven't been able to afford to fly or fly. I've flown very little, um, because I never took the commercial. I didn't finish my commercials. So if I migraine as it happened, stop. Um, but I have you know I, I bet I bet I have like five hundred and fifty hours in my logbook, probably about four hundred which are on helicopters because I did helicoptering first, then I did fixed wing. Um, and I I'm rated, although I've lapsed them, I'm rated for four different types of helicopter. I've got a night rating for helicopters. I'm rated for three or four different types of fixed wing, um, aircraft. And genuinely, if you said, I mean, that represents all the money that I was earning during those periods of time, plus more, because I, mm. in the day I used to, like I used to move helicopters for people to build hours up. And I went to the States and flew the traffic report around Los Angeles to build my jet hours and things like this. But if you said, would I genuinely, would I cash those hours in now for cash? Uh, hell no, absolutely not. You know, you can, no, no amount of money in the bank genuinely or possessions would ever replace the memories of those 550 hours. Yeah. Not a cat and hell's chance. You know, you, could, you couldn't buy that experience. And literally these days, you couldn't buy that experience. You know, I was doing things like you couldn't even do anymore. I remember when we when I was flying the traffic report around Los Angeles. This was actually before and after September the 11th. And I can remember landing on the roof of the LA Times to pick up the, um, the news photographer because we were going to the scene of an accident for him to photograph it while I hovered above it. 
And, you know, we were downtown LA between the skyscrapers. Um, and it's just like, you just wouldn't be allowed to do the stuff that I did then, then, if that yeah. makes sense. It's like, so, so, you know, that's irreplaceable. Um, and, and, and worth far more than the money. I mean, it'd be nice to have the money as well. That would be comfortable, but, uh, instead of, no. Yeah. Not, not I guess, I guess you mean you look, looking at the life you live, you, you never have needed the money. You never had needed some sort of cash to, to live a life you wanted to live. Yeah, you know, I could have done. I, yeah, yeah, there were times, definitely, when I was racing. Right, I, there were times when I was driving quite quickly, and if I could have found a bit more, I could have maybe made a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was like in '89, I was driving very well. I would say um, I was in the British Formula Ford Championship, Junior Championship, and there are flashes when. You know, and different. I led my first class B Formula Three race, for example. Uh, I went to the States and tested for a world sports drive. I was the quickest driver tested. And there were times when to have had access to more funds could have allowed me to break through. Um, and and not having funds probably uh, cut cut it a bit short. But with the balance of hindsight, I'm just grateful for the opportunities. I really am. You know, maybe at the time. Harry, I would say, like at the time, if you'd have caught me after I first stopped and retired from racing, I'd put together a deal to race. Actually, I put together a deal with um, uh, Calor Gas, and it was supposed to see me go to, through to Class B touring cars and then Class A, and we had a dispensation to run an LPG powered Vauxhall. Okay. Um, and and so and that that deal fell apart when I was out of the country, uh, actually working and driving for a team based in Miami. And I came back in the country. It was just kind of before the days of social media and, and read about it in autosport and, and just quit the sport there and then because I thought at that point my window of opportunity had gone. And if you'd have asked me then, I think I would have been quite, you know, my, my attitude would have been bitter because I'd worked really hard to put a deal together. And then when I wasn't in the country, someone took it away. But that's a long time ago. You know, when I look back on it now, don't feel bitter at all. I just look back on it and think, you know, what an incredible run i had for somebody with no cash hmm. at all you know and no, and no access to family money that then you can only be grateful because along the way a lot of people backed me and helped me you know i had a lot of great sponsors from person who become personal friends and you know small businesses where that where the owner of the business backed me uh and 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 if you go on my website now and you look at i put a footer on my website actually um, we redid my website during um, lockdown, which was a great thing to do. If a good friend of mine did it, a uh, brilliant web guy, and he did it as a favor rather than doing it commercially. And uh, he said, you need to get all this down and all the pictures down before you start forgetting. And he's, he's got a point. You know, I've had some big shunts racing. Yeah. And de- definitely the memory is not as great as it was. And But one, one of the things I definitely did, what I wanted to do is down the bottom of every one of the main pages, there's a footer with uh echelons on with thanks to the key people help me because it, it, when i when i thought about it when i looked at the website i realized that it was as much uh, as much as was as much their doing that i did any of it as my doing yeah. fantastic people who trusted me and backed me and and even to this day racing classics i still have that i have brilliant people sponsors you know, like um, you know, Premier Signs, who've been with me, they're now called Liberty Graphics. They've been with me since day one. You know, these guys have been looking after me. Um, and STC Builders, 
this year, backing myself and my team at Richard Darling in their 50th anniversary year. And um, yeah, just brilliant companies uh, and, and always really passionate and they're getting involved. And, you know, I work really hard for my sponsors too. I make sure they get maximum exposure and we run hospitality at the events. We have their people along. So it's a two-way deal. You know, I never, I never take any of it for granted. No, I mean, it's, yeah, it's looking at it. It's clear. I mean, passion has driven most of the things that you've done in life. And I mean, everything happens for a reason. So the fact that you didn't race in that cattle, we didn't take the cattle route, that might have, that might have happened. The car might have blown up. Who knows? So, I mean, it's, it's great to look at, look at that and just be grateful. But Steve, I mean, for the people listening and, and I try to make this podcast as educational as, as, as it is entertaining, but for someone that wanted to start looking at a career racing or a career just just getting into cars and being able to experience that yeah how would you suggest they do it what would you suggest they do and i mean do you have any tips or pointers for them yeah harry do you know what what i love about life is this right the the truth i mean i coach karting so i coach from the very you know from cadet level Mm. Uh, i've got a really a really um good young cadet called um will whale who is he's got so many of the right attributes to make his way through uh in this sport and uh tomorrow night for example i'm i'm hosting a kart club awards um evening at silverstone which i love doing that kind of stuff because all the young carters are there after having a you know fre- frenetic season of racing um and the sport looks so difficult to progress in as you know Right, so hard to find the money, the drives, the opportunities, and stuff. That there's a part of me that knows how hard it is that would say to them, "Don't even do it," right? Because it's going to be ninety nine percent, you know, frustration and banging your head against the wall and and and, and all that stuff, and one percent excitement and success. But the great thing in the world is, I know that the ones who are as passionate as I was wouldn't listen to that. Yeah. that's the brilliant thing about the sport do you see what i mean so my it is that kind of sport whereby i'd almost say this right only do it like do it you, you can do it as a club racer or do it for fun or no problem but if you're hell-bent on making it into a career right only do it if you absolutely have to and what i mean by that is like it's the only thing that's going to work for you because because you're going to need that level of tenacity and when i see that um, one of the guys that I look after is is a young esports Formula One driver. He's twice world champion and current Ferrari works team leader living in Marinella. That's Brendan Lee. Yeah. Right? And I started working with him when he was driving for Mercedes AMG Petronas. And at the time he was failing badly. And by the end of the, se- the first season I worked with him, he didn't win one, but he had a second and a third, right? So and it was incredibly exciting working with them. This is like sim racing, but it's taken incredibly seriously and they're paid professionals. And he has such a fan, he's developed such a fantastic approach to the sport and to life. He's quite he's quite an inspirational character because he's very deep thinking and he's very, very committed. You gotta be, I would say, I would say to people who are thinking of making it or trying to make something out of racing. You're going to have to be ridiculously tenacious. You're going to have to be incredibly hardworking. And the most important thing is you're going to have to be determined to the point that you're just not going to take no for an answer because it will get, this is a sport that is 
is very tough. Mm-hmm. There's not there's no doubt about it. And if I if I think back to when I was like young and I was doing it, you you couldn't have stopped me. You know what I mean? I I did I I did so many crazy things to get yeah. going racing. Um, I, one day I should write a book about them. But when I when I look at the stuff that I did, because I wouldn't take no for an answer, Harry. What are those things? I mean, just just out of interest, I mean, what, if you can pick the the craziest thing you did. Okay, so what are those things? So um, I, I started with kart racing. Uh, very quickly realized that the kart a kart didn't for someone like me without family money didn't have anywhere to write sponsors' names. So I mm-hmm. had to get a Formula Ford. So I was at the time I was uh, the assistant manager or, or general manager or something very young at a hotel in Kenilworth. And I persuaded the hotel owner or franchisee to let me have the shed around the back. And I used my bonus money to buy a Formula Ford. And I got all the staff working at the hotel, the waiters, the chefs, the commie chefs, to work as my mechanics and team. And we ran the racing car from the shed around the back of the hotel in Kenworth. And I kid you not. And to create space in the shed, the hotel manager himself was a complete alcoholic. So half the time he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I can remember that, that this place was next to the River Avon. We took all the furniture, which was in storage in the shed to create space to put the racing car in there and floated it off down the River Avon. So it probably ended up in Stratford-upon-Avon, stuck in a weir or something. And I can remember, for example, we didn't have any money or resource in the beginning to go testing at the racetrack like a driver would now. So at night time, I used to take the racing car out on the public highway and I drive around the ring road of Kenilworth up to Kenilworth and back again and back into the car park. Like it's when we were trying different developments on the car at yeah. night with no lights. Right now, t- today that would look like insanity and you'd be locked up, you know, for forever and they'd throw away the key. But you had to do that. Do you know what I mean? Like needs must. I wanted to be a racing driver. And none of it was going to come easy. And I and I was really hustling it. From day one, I was hustling it to get out there and to do it. And and when you had opportunities, I mean, I, you know, I traveled the world. Yeah. And you know, I, I traveled the world uh, racing, testing, driving and working. And and still do, really, like in pursuit of the, the things that mattered to me. And, and so you can't you just can't wait i remember a really fantastic quote when barry sheen died it was on the back of i think uh motorcycle news i thought it was a brilliant quote actually i wish i'd said it and he said um uh don't wait for your ship to come in swim out to meet it yeah that's perfect that's that's all the wisdom probably you need to succeed in something like racing right there in that one quote uh, and, you know, you, you should look it up. But, I mean, I, I, I came up with, you know, I used to work with um, a guy called Jason Plato, who went on to become, obviously, a multiple British touring car champion. And um, incredible character, great fun and a great friend. But, you know, I, I remember when he tested, he won the Williams touring car test for winning the Renault Spider Cup or something like this. And um, he would, he tested quickest, but Williams wrote to him and said, uh, sorry, Jason, brilliant job with the test, but actually we're not signing you. I think it was Jean-Christophe Bouillon or something. He was in F1. They signed him or they were going to sign him. And Plato is his last chance, really, at his age and, and stuff. And I always remember that he drove early in the morning to Williams Grand Prix Engineering, waited for Frank's car to arrive and, you know, Frank's quadriplegic and, and sort of looked the other way while Frank's driver 
got him out of the car and put him in his wheelchair. And then Jason doorstepped him all the way to the door and said, like, Frank, you can't do this. You're making a mistake. You need me. You know, you don't need Jean Christophe. You need me. And and and, and I, I remember thinking at the time, you know, most people, if they got a, a letter after testing successfully for Williams touring car team, and it's, you know, on headed paper and it said, you know, dear Harry, thanks for testing quickest. But on this occasion, we've decided not to uh, to employ you as our driver. Yeah, I would say ninety nine point nine percent of the people that I know would would say, "Oh, that's a rejection letter." And and you know, I had to look at that, and I thought, even I had to question myself on that one. I thought, bloody hell, would I have after getting that letter, would I have gone down there and doorstep Frank Williams to try and force him to? And Jay, you know, that's that's the maybe. Do you know what I mean? That's the intensity. I was I was thinking about that, and that's like why Jason's such an impressive character. I might, might be very funny as well. Does mm. look like a horse. That's the only problem. Uh, and yeah. also, I'm a good friend of Matt Neal's as well, which was always tricky. So I did some some shows like an evening with Matt Neal, and of course, those two allegedly hated each other when they were racing against each other. But I don't think they did at the time, probably in the moment, but. Um, they're very different characters, but I think now they, now they're both sort of retired. They can be mates. Yeah, you know, I mean, you could say Verstappen and Hamilton hate each other, but maybe just based on what's happened on track. But you never know; they might actually quite like each other. I off, doubt off it. Tri- I mean, I, yeah, I doubt. I, I really, I really doubt it. I think like um, Hamilton's. I, I have to say, he's more, much more cultured type of a guy. I think he's. Um, they're, they're such different characters, aren't they? Like Verstappen is. Um, I don't know how to explain him. He's just like new school, but he he's just, uh, do you know, I was saying to somebody the other day, Verstappen reminds me of Mike Tyson. Yeah. I can, I can see. Yeah, he's just te- he's yeah. technically, technically the perfect perfection at delivering the killer punch. Like he is, he's an incredibly hungry, powerful, talented uh, driver. Yeah. You know, I'm a set. I'm, I'm an Ayrton Sanna fan. So it's they're they're like absolutely t- chalk and cheese if you, if you know what I mean they're yeah. completely different they're almost diametrically opposed you know on the color wheel they're on opposite sides of it I think so um, but I I would think I would think those two no love lost um, between they're so they're so different I mean Ham- Hamilton is Hamilton's really I think he's a really intelligent person as well you know he's, he's very deep thinking very intelligent cultured kind of a guy really was i think like um verstappen is not <laughs> he's just a yeah amazingly quick driver with um brave hungry powerful driver you know and i mean is is that something you coach when you, when you look at driver training is 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 attitude and mindset something that you try and mentor people with on? yeah yeah, I, I, absolutely, definitely, it is right. And and but some people have like if you look at Verstappen, he definitely has a, a surplus of everything he needs in the modern Formula One. If if you understand yeah. me, like he, where he is, um, he's ruthless, blindingly quick, incredibly brave, brilliant um, in the wet. Yeah, he's he's an incredible uh, raw, natural talent um i don't think he's especially any quicker than hamilton actually mm. i think the two of them are in a class of their own 
in terms of pure pace. They it, they kind of achieve what they achieve in different ways, um, uh, I think. But um, when when I'm coaching drivers, um, I think they, you know, like I can remember years ago, we had 50 kart drivers turn up to try and win the way to Elf La Filière, which is the scholarship in France to get a drive. It's an incredible thing that Elf Petroleum put on. Uh, Henri Pescarola had like a college or university of motorsport. And at Silverstone, I hosted the competition. It's like a driver search competition for a week. And I've hosted yeah. many of them at one time, including GT Academy, which you probably saw bits of on TV in the first series. I have, yeah. Um, one thing and another. And um, this self, the filier, you know, the, the thing that always, I'll always remember about that, um, the two guys who won it, which I think were, was it Tom Gamer and Lars Sexton? Both incredibly good car drivers and good drivers generally. I could have picked, you know, I needn't have done the whole week because when I went in the room with the 50 drivers, there were two of them at the front, smartly dressed, like absolutely pinned to every word I said, eyes wide open, two young guys at the front who were, they'd got there early enough to make sure they were both at the front. Yeah. And after a week, they were the winners. You know, it's like, and I can remember having the whiteboard and putting like, what is the most important, single most important characteristic? And that's, how i'd start those uh driver searches out like fleshing out of the the drivers to try and work out what they thought and you know variously people would say car control or reaction time or but actually hunger is the most important component hmm. it starts from that it really starts from that like brendan lee for example was an eight hour a day man in his bedroom on the simulator on his way to becoming a world champion Absolutely, absolutely relentless right to to that's a level of hunger that most most people can't generate nor sustain you know and i remember doing a show once i mean not even in racing i did a show incredible show like i got throughout my career again i'm really lucky that like, people ask me like steve will you come along and present this show or you know do this awards or whatever and i did um for a corporate events agency a show with eric bristow I don't know if you know the name. He was a crafty Cockney darts, top darts player before your time. But like darts was a big TV sport and um, superb guy. Right. And a really, really interesting, nice guy. And I remember the same from him. You know, I said like at the time, I think he was the world champion. And and it actually really shattered a lot of myths for me when I did that event. I've only just remembered that because I said to him, how did you get into darts? Because everyone's image of darts players, were they were sort of a big working class guys with bellies who drank continuous pints mm. and, and that was people's image of a darts player and actually i always remember him telling me that he got into darts because he went to the pub with his dad and he liked adding up numbers really quickly so when you're playing darts mm. you need somebody working out what you've got left to get so that immediately the myth i had about darts players was shattered because the reason he got into it is because he loved maths so mm. there's myth number one gone Myth number two was that he drank much because he drank almost nothing, right? But what he did say was, as a schoolboy, it was dartboard in the back of his bedroom wall. Hours, hours every night. Practice, 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 practice. While all the other kids were out in summer playing football, chasing girls. You know, he's up in his bedroom. Harry, if you want it badly enough, do you know what I mean? It's like... You know, you know no bounds to how much determination you're willing to put into it. And I've come across that, actually. I've come across that philosophy. Brendan, I mentioned him. 
I've seen that time and time again. That like relentless. That and, and it is hunger, you know. It's like how, how much do you really want it? You know, how much do you? How much are you prepared to sacrifice for it? You yeah. say that you really want it. How much are you prepared to sacrifice? You know, what extent? How important is this to you? And 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 I think that generally speaking, for champions, they go, to, they take it to the next level. Yeah, I mean, I, if I look at this podcast and say, I really want this podcast to become number one, I've got to spend a lot more time chasing yeah. myself, and not just not just chasing relentlessly myself, but just working on every little bit from the questions to to the way I interview people and the way I present myself. I mean, how would you, how have you learned? to i don't know manage your speech and manage your presentation of yourself so yeah so i have i have a, a course called present to win mm. right which I, which I i developed i've been teaching it now for 20 years i think right I developed 70 revisions to the course i started off believe it or not um i started off because people saw me making presentations and said would you come and teach other people how to do it i guess it's as simple yeah. as that but for example, I used to do all at Loughborough University. I used to do all for the AASE. That's the something sport and excellence. I can't remember. It's a great organization. And I used to uh, train all the junior British sporting squads. So basically the kids coming up and, and yeah. how to handle the media, how to make presentations, how to talk. And from there, you know, I've done it for the Infinity Engineering Academy, for Nissan's GT Academy, for Alpine Stars in France, for the Ford Motor Company, um, took the course and, and in, in, in had me teach all their delegates it. Um, I, I teach it all over the place worldwide. And do you know, it's a funny thing, actually, you asked me, of all the things I do, it's it, in some ways it's my most important work and it's the work of which I'm the most proud, right? A, because probably I wrote it, and, I, mm. and I, I didn't read loads of books on the subject. What I did was I took what I used as a presenter myself, making my living as a, a live presenter over the years, and I distilled it into the training course. So I, so I teach people because it, I, it, I became aware that there are presentation skills courses available. And when you look at the, you know, who's the guy teaching it? What's he done? Oh, he's the chief financial officer for such and such a company. Like if, I, if I'm going to learn presenting i'd like to learn it from someone who makes their living practicing the art for the most part yeah. does that make sense so I'd, I'd already done loads of presenting before i started teaching it that's for sure um but why why it's really exciting to teach it is because uh i can empower people with it and and i and, and i i kept you know when i'm when i'm teaching i've I kept some of the feedback that was, and i've had people like do the course and say I've actually got feedback. People said, this is the single best day of my life. And I'm like, uh, you know, that I, I always have a joke about it. I feel a bit embarrassed about it. But actually what they mean is I've given them the tools with with which to challenge maybe when they didn't yeah. have them before. Do you see what I mean? So I, I, I maybe, I, you know, and I've had it where people have come back to me afterwards and simple stuff sometimes. Like, you know, a woman uh, is a single mother was one of my delegates for one of the motor manufacturers, car manufacturers I was working with. And and I saw her again, like in three months time, and she'd stood up at um, a PTA meeting for the first time ever yeah. at the school and was able to talk about something that the school were doing wrong with her kid. 
in front of a group of people and she'd never been able to do it before. You know, I gave her a voice because I helped her because people fear public speaking so much. It's such a painful process for so many people that if you can give them some tools and confidence um, and help them with it. And, and, and you know, part, part of the tools are explaining to them that, you know, I've done, I have done now thousands of shows. I'm quite old, unfortunately, right? So I've done thousands, thousands of shows. There's no question about it. Because for years, I was Silverstone's corporate presenter. And mm. we used to run every single weekday back in the day, you know, corporate shows and events. And I've done, probably done 16 Grand Prix. I've done like three Goodwood revivals. I've done seven Festival of Speeds, three members meetings. You know, I just like the CV is ridiculous and i'm very very grateful for all the trust people putting in me um yeah. but but the great thing about it is that people say well how come you don't get nervous and i'm like i do every single show that i do every single show i get nervous before right but because i understand what i'm doing within reason i know that those nerves are the fuel that will make a fantastic show the time i shouldn't go on stage is the day when I when I don't have any nerves. I shouldn't go on stage then, because same as when I pull up on the grid in a racing car, yeah, you know, my heart's still going a thousand beats a minute, right? But I know that I need that so that when the light goes green, I'll have enough energy and my reactions will be fast enough to to do the job. So I think what I'm saying is like, if you you help people to understand right, that the nerves can be energy instead yeah. of choking and, and and if you can do that and you can give people a voice and you can help them through it um so so i find those courses like we're going to do um we're actually going to do three days with my senior instructors at silverstone in february where we're incorporating the course into the instructor training we do every year yeah. uh, at silverstone and for some of those guys i know that, that it'll be the first presentation skills training of any description they've ever had and some of them are using, are they doing presentations? And there's just some things that I know because I had to learn them the hard way that they won't have thought about that I'll give them little hints and tips that are going to make it easier for them to go out and, 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 and do an even better job. And, and also, you know, the world opens up. It's basic communication, you know, and, and like people are not good at that. And that's why the world is in the assets in. Because people can't communicate, really. You know that, no, that's it's correct. Of course, it's all attention in the world. You know, on a global level, it is because people don't know how to express themselves. So, if we can work on people's communication skills, um, then we can go a long way towards making nations cooperate better. No, it's, it's it's clear to see where you've come from in terms of that that hunger that you mentioned earlier in terms of presenting and, and working and making that your craft is that you've you do it for a living you you do it as as your profession so only natural that you you'd be so eloquent in your speech and communication would be so important to you as it clearly is it it is but also the other thing is how i'm really lucky because i i mean this is one of the things that makes it tricky when i work for car manufacturers i have said when I've been uh, doing present to win with car manufacturer delegates, if I've had somebody in the room who said, I'm not really that interested in um, cars, even though the car manufacturer probably didn't like me saying that, 
my general advice is I think you need to get a different job. Yeah. So let's be clear about that. And, and 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 that's not what a car manufacturer in that situation necessarily wants you to be telling people that are employed to sell cars, right? But but that's what I actually believe. And so from my point of view, uh, for my own personal integrity, I have to always say what I believe, for better or for worse, mm. right? Um, and and the reality is I mean it because all the things that I promote, present, and get involved in are things that I love. So if you always do stuff that you fundamentally love and you enjoy, then you then you are going to be passionate anyway. Do you see, you see what I mean? So I don't yeah. get involved in arenas that don't interest me. You know, don't don't get me wrong. Like you know, if I'm like earlier this year, I was making films about an electric, basically a van that's a people carrier. You know, it's not that's not necessarily something that I might look at and think, well, that'd be my favorite car. It's not like uh, I don't know. It's not like something that would suck me in, like I suppose my my MX five or something like that, mm. where where dynamically it's beautiful and to drive. But, right, what it is, it's it's fantastically efficient. It'll be brilliant for a family. It's really safe. It's very well engineered. It's nice to drive. It's good for the planet. So there's lots of things about it that I think are going to be brilliant for the demographic. Does that make sense? So so my point is that I'm lucky because I I don't get involved in projects that I don't believe in. And that does mean on occasions I turn stuff down. Uh, even when I can't really afford to, because yeah. if I can't, if I don't believe in it, I'm not authentic, and and that's that's the fundamental premise, Harry. I think of all of the things I would say to people: be authentic. You have to be authentic because because otherwise, yeah, you'll give yourself away, a leak out of you. People will sense that if you're not I mean, telling the truth. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense if you're not if you're not authentic, you don't believe in what you're doing. There won't be the confidence there to to be able to carry your thoughts on the process because you'll be constantly thinking about stuff you don't know, stuff you, I mean, you might get a degree of imposter syndrome if you don't know the topic you're speaking on or the the subject you're well, presenting. I mean, do you know what? You, you don't have to know everything about everything and you can't, right? It's impossible, mm. right? So, so it's, that's, but but you have to believe, I think you have to really believe in, in, in what you're talking about. Otherwise, don't talk about it. Find, find what my my advice to any of those people is find something you're really passionate about and it actually do you know what it doesn't matter what it is so long as you you're passionate about it yeah it doesn't matter if it, whatever it is if you're passionate about it and you you're working relentlessly to excel at what it is you're doing because you care about it then you will succeed whatever you do in life right where it gets infinitely harder this is where we were joking about this or half joking about the stockbroker there is if your passion is making money right that's not that's not the same really because it's not i don't know it's it's, it's kind of different do you know what i mean you might make money but it's, i don't know that's not the, it's not the same thing no it's it's, it's, it's yeah i mean it's i, I can see not, where you're coming not, from it's not primal it's not primal you're doing that for a different a different set of reasons so you may make money but i don't think i don't think it's ever going to be very attractive no, that passion is not be attractive it's in, it's interesting because i i've i've recently swapped industries outside of this podcast 
So I've been working, I've been working in sales and that is chasing money. And to be honest with you, I'm not passionate about chasing money. I'm passionate about the education system and all the way I think it's failing people with a passion for anything. It doesn't yeah. give you the option to, if you have a passion for cars or any, anything, you have a passion for gardening. The answer for most schools is go to university and and get a degree. That seems to be the not the old way of doing things, but it seems to be the way that I experienced education was I was only told that getting a degree and then getting a job is is the way to live life where it didn't resonate with me and and school was hard because of that and i think it's important to just just to this podcast as well is to speak to people and let them know that you can do anything you want and i think you're a great example of that is with with grit and hard determination you can you can achieve pretty much anything you put your mind to yeah and don't let don't let other people tell you what your passion is don't have True. your passion instilled in you by your parents or somebody yeah. else. You know, you, you most people, if they look around them, it's a good start to look around and, and say, like, for, for example, I adore playing guitar. If I've got spare time, I adore playing guitar, right? That, I, don't, I don't have to pretend to, even if I'm not the best at doing it, mm. right? I, any spare time I've got, I put the guitar up, switch the microphone on, and I have a, and I have a jam, do a bit of busking, right? I just love the feeling of it. Nobody has to tell me to do that. Do you see what I mean? There's some things which are just, most people know that, but I suppose a lot of people are scared to try and turn what they love into uh, a job. And I would say yeah. that, I would say that, you know, like for example, with your podcasting, undoubtedly that can become a job and a career at some point without a shadow of doubt, whether you become like, you make radio programs, you make jingles, you make voiceovers, you know, you get into music or whatever, or whatever side of it that, you know, the podcast, the training side of it, you know, voiceovers, there, there, there's a, if you're really into it, there's no doubt. I, I think that's the other thing. I would never take no for an answer because even though something may seem incredibly niche, then if you're really keen on it, I mean, I've been, I've been able to make, it's not, not a fantastic living, but I've been able to make a, a living pretty much doing these crazy disparate things but do you know what's really great about it actually i i almost feel guilty admitting this right but you know I, I love what i do most of the time yeah it probably it probably never really it probably never falls below like liking that's probably the minimum liking most of the time it's loving um and that you just got that's got to be lucky hasn't it like i don't i don't i never get up to work even though i've been working in the racing school um for so many years it's always a fresh day and there's always fresh people and you know there's people out you know you're gonna make them have a fantastic day it's their birthday present to come and drive a mclaren or something like that silverstone yeah. and you're you're going to be part of giving them a brilliant day so every day is like a reset i think um and so like when I'm driving to the race school to work, for example, even though I've done that kind of thing for years and stuff, that's never a chore. No. It's never a chore. It always feels, I always feel privileged. You know? and, and like, I guess even like turning up at Silverstone to work, you know, it's like, even if it's a tough day or whatever, the, the reality is the arena, you know, the place I'm at, or or particularly like, you know, I didn't earn money doing it, but anything to do with flying anything to do with flying as i arrive at the airfield i'm just like a kid again yeah 
how could Harry, how could you not be? Really? Do you know what I mean? Quite apart from the fact there's the element of risk, you know, like, uh, you know, am I going to make it home? But that adds, that adds like, um, you know, a, a bit of excitement to the whole thing as well. A little bit of danger. The same with racing, I suppose. But, or, or, you know, when I'm road testing motorcycles or, and, and that's the other thing I do as well. I mean, I have to admit, like I, I'll often during the summer when I'm working, I'll often go to work on a bike. Yeah. People are like, isn't that uncomfortable? Well, it is, but it's, it's a thousand percent more exciting than going in, in a car. <laughs> and they're like, well, wh- why are you doing such a long distance on a bike? Well, because I still can. That's yeah. why. Um, yeah, why, why am I doing you? it? Yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't I? Because I love motorcycles. I adore riding motorcycles. So, yeah, I, I take every opportunity. And then sometimes I feel guilty because, you know, so you look around and sometimes people don't look that happy with what they're doing on a daily basis. But then I have to remind myself, especially in this country, you know, not so much in other countries where they're not so lucky to be able to to make choices. But here, for the most part, people choosing a lot of the time, but it's about taking responsibility because they're like, I'm doing a job I hate. Why are you doing the job? Well, it pays really well. Oh, well, okay. Do you know what I mean? There you go, QED. Yeah. I'm doing a job I, I really hate, but it pays for me to do this, that, and the other. Okay, well that's your compromise yeah i'd love to do what you do but it doesn't pay anything yeah but you would love to do it because you'd be doing what you love to do mm. so that that's got to be you know that's really that's really important you know i think you don't damage the planet help other people out as much as you possibly can but there's no shame in pursuing stuff that you really love you'll have a better life and you'll be healthier yeah i mean it, it seems like you live you live very much in the moment um, I would say that you know what, yeah, I do. But again, I, you, that's a really, a really good point, right? At, at, like everybody else, have to work on it. Like all of this stuff, have to work on it. You yeah. have to work on it. Living in the moment, so you, you hit the nail on the head there. That that should be taught at school, Harry. That should be taught at school because nobody lives in the moment. We're either living as a result of our past, what it did to us, or what we perceive it did to us. Or we're living for a future that may never come instead of living in the moment that you just you just mentioned. You know, we forget. We forget. We we all forget. Uh, they should teach that and they should teach gratitude. They yeah, really should do that. But they don't in schools. Nobody ever, like, we live in a society which takes it for granted. Like, here I am. Okay, we live in a tiny cottage, right, as a result of lockdown. As you can see in the background, this is my office. It's bedroom two. We've got one bedroom and this you know and we we had a bigger house and lockdown wiped all that stuff out when we didn't get supported but right i'm warm yeah i'm well fed yeah i've got amazing stuff that i'm involved in great friends great people around me and challenges and a cat can you hear it i could just hear the cat (laughs) yeah that's that's because my partner's just gone back it's shouting for food that's the bengal but yeah so so that whole that whole thing harry about gratitude they should teach that honestly that appreciation because you know people are living in a brilliant country how do we tell our kids about the cost of living crisis well you don't tell them it's a crisis to start with how about if you said it was a cost of living challenge and reminded them that their grandparents coming out of the war didn't have anything you know they didn't have meat apart from once a week why not start from that perspective instead of this whole entitlement thing about oh, you're really hard done by you won't be able to have the latest playstation for christmas do what i did 
you know, get 20 paper rounds all at the same time. You know, so like, let's, you know, this this ridiculous approach we've got, like you said about the education thing, right? I remember, do you know the worst thing? I've got to say this when I think about it. I mean, without getting too political, the, the conservative government during lockdown, when they were trying to get, um, I remember they ran those ads where they had like a ballet dancer. And it said something like the ballet dancer was sitting down. It says something like Sophie's future is in IT. She just doesn't know it yet. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that. That's the society. Yeah. Like, you know, don't support art or anybody who's got a passion like for something higher. Right. But let's just grind it out of them, make them into little worker bees to plug into this perceived society where they can all, you know, you know, that that that's what we should rail against. I'm hopeful that your generation actually will rebel against it eventually without without destroying the planet. That's, yeah, that's that's half half the half the yeah. battle, isn't it? Um we becoming becoming innovative, but also thinking about the long term effects of it. And I mean you mentioned the future, Stephen. You mentioned how the like I say, like that future of that ballerina is isn't to be in IT, it's to just to be wherever they want. But if I had said to you the next the next sort of five years have been the best five years you could possibly have, I mean, what would have had to happen in those five years for that to be true? The last five years or the next next five years? The next five years. Uh, what would have to happen um, for the in, in terms of the world? I mean, in terms of the world, but just in terms of your own view of the best five years or the best next do, five do, years. Do you know what? Honestly, and, and you're like, what age are you, Harry? I'm twenty one. Okay, so I tore my core at the beginning of last year, and so I can't run, like I said to you before. I'm waiting. My arm isn't working properly, so I don't have as much strength. I, I, I'd only really, for personally, I'd only want, for one thing, continued good health, I think. I know it sounds a funny thing to say, but like when you're 21, that's not even probably on your agenda. because Take it for granted. You do, you do, you do. Yeah. And, and actually, actually, Funnily enough, right, the earlier you understand that you shouldn't take it for granted, I think the better, because that's where real gratitude comes from. Because I was mm. the same as you, like at your age, I would have been this hell-bent on getting to Formula One and 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 thinking that that was all that mattered. I wouldn't have given my health a second thought. Now I do at this age, you know, and it's like, yeah. having been injured a couple of times, but I'd like to see the people turn around and say, just no, you know, at a certain point, no to to having stuff vested on them it's very easy to be so uh, disenfranchised with it all that you think i can't make a difference and and no one gets involved in anything to to try and change anything does that make mm. sense we've yeah. just stopped we've just had a campaign here one of the last films i made last year was there's a company around here I take too long to say the whole story but they wanted to put a wildlife park about three or four miles up the road destroy 80 acres of prime Warwickshire countryside. The the park already exists somewhere. It's at Honeybourne at the moment. Okay. But the the developers can't get approval to build houses just up the road from here. But they can get approval to build houses on the site where the wildlife park currently is. There's so much money in building houses for them that they want to recite the wildlife park here. But it means destroying 80 acres of virgin countryside. There's only one reason to do that. It's not for the animals, because Arctic lynxes 
and you know um, red lemurs do not want to be in those parks at all they want to be back at home in their natural habitat they don't want to be exhibits you know like mm. in a zoo um it's only for profit and so we fought our community fought like hell to stop and been able to do that so you can make a difference but the, the questions i like to do when i like to end the podcast with are sort of the first one being the top three cars or your top three car garage what would it be it's where i started as yeah. a kid looking at cars top three cars wow right one would be my uh, this is going to sound odd right one would be my rf89 van diemen that i competed in in 1989 which is like i won races in that car i adored it i was in it I, I reckon i must have with testing and racing i think i was in it 23 or 25 times that year okay mm. here's the really exciting thing for me not that i probably i may not ever get to see it in australia they run classic Formula Fords in the same liveries they ran in period. And I had a guy get in touch with me. My car went to Australia. It's been raced in Australian Championship. A guy yeah. got in touch with me and said, had I got any photos of it? So he could generate vinyl stickers and letters to make it exactly the same. So he has all my sponsors' names. And the companies don't even exist anymore from 1989 no. on the side of the car. And it runs in the same colours I raced in it. And I... Harry, I adore that car, right? Because mm. I was I, I loved it in period. No one races in it. I never imagined like most racing cars get crushed or you know, you forget all about them, they're gone. And that when I was young, I couldn't give a stuff. If it was one year old, it was should go to the scrapyard. But now, all these years later, like 40 years later, I look at that. So that would be number one. Um, Lamborghini Mura. Without a shadow of doubt, right? The biggest influence as a kid ever was my uh, I foster mum took me to see the Italian job at the start of the Italian job. Yeah. When I, and I still to this day think the Lamborghini Miura is, is the best looking supercar ever made. Even though the team I drove for in Miami, Auto Volante, Alfa Romeo, were originally the importers. It was called uh, race. What were they called? Racecom or the, the name of the business in Portland. And, the team manager for the team and the engineer said to me, because I'd never driven the Mura, he yeah. said, um, uh, effing tractor. So like, he said, terrible to drive. But remember, they're in Miami, so it's hot as hell. Probably either didn't have a very good air condition or no air condition. And he said to drive, it was like, I still don't care. I still don't care. Right? That's the most epic car uh, in, in the, the world. Number three, man. Um well, that's that's so hard, you know. I, I don't know why that's a hard question. So the Van Diemen, the Lamborghini Mura. What else yeah. am I going to think in my dream garage? Wow. Well, the car that any race driver would always go back to. I've got to say this, right? We'd always go back at some stage. I mean, I race a classic one, which is hideous. It tries to kill me at every opportunity. But we'd probably have an, a 911, really. If you said to me, uh money's no object pick yourself a daily driver yeah whenever i, I work sometimes at the poor center training the instructors there whenever i get an any 911 by and large i always like it a lot so i'm going to say like where my ship comes in again right i'm going to say um i've had a couple of road ones high mileage ones but yeah a 911 they, they always they always have harry that feel about them there's something about 911 which is just masses of character. And actually, I'm going to have to put a bike in that garage as well. So I have a Ducati. 
and I've had about 10 Ducatis. And, and th there is undoubtedly, I love all motorcycles, but there's something very special about Ducatis, I think. Yeah. I mean, I never thought about putting bikes in a three-car garage. I mean, you clearly fit in there if <laughs> you look at the space. But yeah, I mean, in terms of, and maybe this next question then changes changes the way I look at it. But if you thought three was hard, I'm going to give you one car to drive on any road or any track in the world, and you can only do it once. Where would you go and what would you take? Right, let me think. One car, any track, any road, anywhere in the world, where am I going to go? It's got to be Ayrton Senna's McLaren, right? Okay. And it's going to be yeah. it's going to be Monaco. It has to be Monaco in Ayrton Senna's McLaren, right? Because still to this day, if you watch the Senna film, as I'm sure you have, right, the most mesmerizing lap ever is watching Senna at Monaco, and that's the stuff. If you said to me, "What stuff, right?" would inspire me that uh, Senna was my absolute hero when he died I was racing in Formula Renault driving for tech speed uh, in yeah. Leamington Spa and I remember going down on that Sunday my mechanic was working with me on the Formula Renault and I went down on my motorbike and I said to him I think Senna's been killed and he was as he was uh Mac Allen superb guy he was as uh upset as I was and he's like no it's not possible he's not possible that Senna could be and neither of us could get our head around that Senna had been killed it didn't seem possible because he seemed like from another world. You know what I mean? And he was just, yeah, he was just. And, and to this day, he's still the inspiration and the, the, the person I most admired in the world of racing. And I've had, you know, there's been a, quite a few people I've, I've respected. But um, for me, he just had that class, the absolute commitment. Mm. A Banzai commitment. So it's going to be Senna's. I can't, I don't know which McLaren it is. I can't remember. It's one of the turbo ones, I'm sure. A Honda engine turbo thing. MP4 dash something. I mean, you, you could. Is it? With a, with a Honda turbo, probably with about a thousand horsepower. Yeah. And he's just like, it was before like sequential and stuff. So you just see him. It's bonkers to watch the speed he's going, but how hard he's working, as was proved by, you know, how it all ended with him. But that's dancing right on the edge. He's right on the edge of the razor blade all the time yeah, yeah it's it's it's, 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 it's it's almost like he's on a cloud when he's driving those cars and watching the footage in this podcast I, I keep i keep mentioning this but it's like i say i i try to give people education and get have let them have an idea of what is possible and so i ask i ask my guests questions that have something to do with their profession, but I, I've, I'm finding it hard to to ask you which part of your profession I, sh I should ask for tips and advice on. But if I had to, okay, maybe I'll rephrase this question. If if you were training yourself 20 years ago, what is the main bit of advice you'd give to that young Steve starting out? That's that's a, that's a that's an absolutely brilliant question for anyone, right? Who, of my age, mm -hmm. it's a brilliant question, right? Um, what would I say? I would say um, I'd say you're all right, kid, because you know what? I think I was also driven by the fact that, you know, I'm always really honest and open and frank about everything. Right. And and the reality is when you when you have not had parents as a child and you haven't had anyone to explain the stuff to you, you have a any child will if they don't have parents in or the parents have left 
different if they've been killed or whatever, but it just left. The, the child will always think that they weren't good enough, and that's why the parents left. You know, if, mm. years of understanding later, like and sort of studying the subject and talking to people, I guess, and you know, talking to uh, you know along the way counselors or psychotherapists explaining how the human mind works. Yeah, and you need that because um, how would you know it when you're 10, 11, you just don't know it. So a child instinctively will be always compensating. If So I'd say to myself, I'd go, um, you're okay. Go. I, I would probably be a bit easier on myself. Like I would mm -hmm. be, I would be less critical of myself. Now, the, the positive of it, there's always a positive. The positive is I drove myself relentlessly hard, right? Because I never felt good enough. Never. Right? Yeah. Still and still probably don't right uh, today. Whatever I do is never quite good enough. It's very rare, even to today. I have to consciously, like being in the moment, I have to consciously say, you know, you did, um, you did a decent job there, of that, mm. right? Because and when I was younger, definitely nothing I ever did was good enough for me. So the problem with living your life that way, Harry, is that you don't take time sometimes to enjoy your successes does mm. that make sense yeah. so it never it, ne it never occurred to me like i can remember being bitterly disappointed when i was i did six races in formula three and then ran completely out of money for example um in b-class formula three and at the time all i could think was how come david coulthard is driving for paul stewart racing and and you are you know you've got camper ski wear on the side of your you're at Formula Three and about half a dozen other small sponsors, right? Um, it never ever occurred to me that he had family around him, and a, a, I mean, I, I must have known it intellectually, but I always took responsibility. So it's like, right, I got to find the money somehow. How am I going to do yeah. it? So I never, it never occurred to me to think if I was talking to myself now, you know, if you'd just done six races in British Formula Three, now I would know how hard that is. That's the cost of a house that you spent you'd have to get together so i'd be like if it was i was talking to you i'd be like harry how the hell did you manage to put that deal together it's incredible do you see what yeah. i mean whereas all i could think of at the time was you've run out of money that's the end of the season you've blown it so i didn't take i didn't take a minute or a second to ever ever give myself any credit for it or think like you know that that you did well in the circumstances if that makes sense now when i and, and and that's the great thing about age now i look back on it and i think well i didn't achieve what i wanted to which was to be a fully paid professional racing driver full-time and drive for all these works teams and live in monaco or whatever i thought i wanted mm. but actually coming from where i came from to do as much as i've done you can take a moment you can look at it and say like my aunt said it to me once actually you know i don't really see it very often but She's um, um, West Indian, like my mum and stuff. But she uh, she said to me, uh, most of the kids that started where you started are either now dead in jail or alcoholics or crackheads. Or, and, and, and she had a point. Not yeah. all of them. Don't get me wrong. Some have done fantastically well. You know, when you start to look at people who built businesses and they, there's loads of people, and not loads, but there's enough people who've got my print you know, started out with less than I had and more challenges. I'm not holding myself up to be anything special at all. There's people who've done a much better job than I've done with less resources. 
But what I would say about it is she had a point that, you know, it could easily have gone the other way. And I, mm -hmm. and I know that as well, by the way, because my half-brother really sadly took that route. Yeah. You know, so I had a half-brother who um, didn't make it, really, hasn't made it. He's in terrible trouble. Um, and so I think there comes a point, yeah, what would I say to my own self? I'd say, like, keep working flat out, keep being passionate, keep being committed. I think I would tell myself that I was good enough, just as I was. So I didn't, so I wasn't always, um, so I could take a moment along the way to reflect and relax and give myself a bit of credit. And the great thing is, that's why when I went back to racing, to race classics, second time around, even though I get frustrated with being old and fat and slow, like I am now compared to when I was young, um, mm. and it's frustrating because I can still, I'm still hungry to be competitive. But I can remind myself, second time around the car, like we were last year, and especially in the former Ford, I mean, the Porsche is brilliant, but I'm thinking, this is cool. <laughs> I'm back in a mm. single seater after all these years. How the hell did that happen? And to even be there, you know, half the people I race with are dead. They're gone. You know what I mean? Like they, they, they're just, oh, they wouldn't fit in the car. And so, you know, second time around, I think I can take a bit more time to stop. And I don't like the expression, but, you know, smell the coffee. It's like I'm just there and I'm thinking this is actually quite cool. And you know what's funny? Like, for example, next week, I mean, these, these things are hard work. Don't misunderstand me. And they genuinely are. But next week, um, I, I'm flying out on Wednesday to Barbados on contract because I work for uh, the track in Barbados and I work in Barbados on projects. Mm. I'm out there for like 10 days and we're making films. Um, and I'm working with an incredibly talented young driver called Zane Maloney, who finished second in this year's GP2 championship, a uh, GP3, a big, big pardon. But he has all the ability to go to Formula One. And I think you'll see he will go to Formula One and he'll be the first Bayesian driver or first Caribbean driver to get to F1. So we're going to do an evening with him while I'm out there and I'm making various training films. Um, and even though I know it's going to be hard work because I'm only there for a short time and they need me to be, you know, I'll be driving into the track in the dark and driving home after it's dark. So people are like, Oh, you're going to go swimming. No point packing your trunks because I'm there to work. Yeah. But, but when I stop and think about it now, you know, I used to jump on an airplane all the time and fly to the States or whatever we we're doing. And I didn't think twice about it. Now I think, especially coming out of the lockdown period where it all got messed up so badly, I think, okay, you know, it's quite cool. You know, I love the island. I love the people. And it's like, okay, I can, I, I, I appreciate it more now. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can, you can take the time to live in the moment. Yeah, I can. And you can take the time to, to, like you say, the second time around getting in a single seat, you've, you now experienced it from two different points in your life. Yeah. And the comparison you like, I think you've mentioned is, 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 it's dumbfounded. The way you view it in two different lights and the way you talk about it in two different lights is I almost made it as an F1 driver in a single seater, but now I get to do the same thing and, and experience it in a whole different light. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. So, and, and now it's like, even when I'm sliding into it, I have to give up the idea. I, I'm too heavy. I'm like a stone and a half heavy, even though I try and keep fit than I was when I was first time around. And I'm 35 years older, right? I'm not going to be up the front with the young blades just the same way when I was doing it, guys of my age weren't up the front with me either. 
right? And I have to remind mm. myself of that. You know, it's like the, 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 that edge, age <laughs> dulls it. You know, I can go as quick as I can go, and I'm sure I can drive better than I did this year, right, when I'm racing next year, but with a bit more practice. But the reality is, so, but it's really important to think, but I'm actually still here and in it, you know, and I'm still feeling the feelings of being in a single seater. And that is one of the most amazing things to do. It's one of life's key experiences, really. And I've got a chance to have a final roll of the dice. Exactly. I mean, and Steve, thank you so much for your time. Harry, it's it's I, been a pleasure to get to know. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. And I've given you a, probably a hell of an editing job to do. Otherwise, like people will have, uh, you know, they've grown old listening to the podcast. But it was a, a pleasure sharing it with you. And I, I've only ever agreed to do one of these before. And I did it. And it was an excellent experience last time as well. Because what it did was it gave me the chance to think about things and crystallize uh, a little bit of my thoughts. So it's a great process. Uh, and, I, and I hope that I always think with these things, if, if one thing that I say or you say, more crucially, resonates with one person that hears it, who's inspired by something or thinks, well, if he did that, what have I got stopping me? Then the whole yeah. thing has been more than worthwhile apart from being great fun. There is so much to unpack in this episode. A more in-depth chat about life rather than racing was not what I expected when sitting down with Steve for our conversation, but looking back on what I expected and what happened, I couldn't be happier with how it turned out. Looking back, and it is evident how Steve has achieved and done so much with his life, from setting his eyes on racing, then giving his time to share that passion with the people at Silverstone, and then further that, taking on the challenge of coaching the young generation of cadets and esports professionals. If I could take away one thing from this, is that if you want something in life, you'll stop saying you want it, and let your actions speak for themselves, and soon enough, that hard work that you've been putting in behind the curtain will pay you back in experiences, life lessons, and most importantly, fun. And what a way to live life in the moment. So, with that being said, I'm Harry and this is the Ignition Podcast. Thank you for listening. Headspace is now becoming more critical than ever. In the past, if you wanted to work on your body, you'd go to the gym. And if you wanted to work on your brain, there was therapy. But recently, other options are becoming increasingly more popular and available. I'll be the first to admit that having access to the privilege and being able to afford treatment has been some of the best working out I could have ever done. So thank you for Tacona, the brand set on taking mental health conversation and breaking the taboo in the automotive industry and helping calm the campaign against living miserably by creating a Christmas raffle. By entering this Christmas raffle, it gives you the opportunity to win amazing prizes from all corners of the automotive world, from clothing, coffee and art, to a ride in a Porsche 959 and a private tour of Concorde. So if this sounds like something you want to get involved with, to enter and win these fantastic prizes, you must head over to justgiving.com. Join me by giving and helping Calm continue their work with suicide and mental illness. Plus win your share of 15 and more amazing prizes as a thank you for your generosity and support. The links will be in the show notes below. And if you have any questions, feel free to DM me or Tacona. I'm sure they'll be more than happy to help. And not only are Tacona helping with this Christmas raffle, also helping you with 15% off their store. That means you can get something for yourself, your loved ones, or someone you care about, just to let them know that it is okay to talk. And it is okay 
to have conversations around mental health. If you enjoyed today's or any of our other episodes, please share them with at least three people you know who are in the car trade, love cars, or just find them interesting. If we can get one more person to listen, then that's one more person in my mission to help inspire people to do more with their passion for cars. 